Do you enjoy listening to On the Ear but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On the Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up and use code EAR21, E-A-R-2-1, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On The Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Even as the global understanding of hearing loss and its widespread impact continues to expand, patients continue to face barriers to their access to hearing health care. While policy and practice changes have helped to deconstruct some of these barriers, the COVID-19 pandemic only highlighted where so much work still needs to be done. Fortunately, healthcare professionals across disciplines are working to better reach underserved populations through innovations in telemedicine and outreach, and today's guest is here to share how his work is helping to close that gap. Dr. Matthew L. Bush, MD, PhD, MBA, easily the the most credentials and degrees of any guest ever on the podcast, is the vice chair for research and a professor in the Department of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at the University of Kentucky in Lexington, Kentucky. He holds the University of Kentucky College of Medicine Endowed Chair in Rural Health Policy. He earned his medical degree from Marshall University School of Medicine in Huntington, West Virginia. He completed his otolaryngology residency at the University of Kentucky. He then completed a postdoctoral research fellowship in his otology, neurotology, and cranial-based surgery fellowship at The Ohio State University. He also completed a PhD in clinical and translational science in 2017 and an MBA in 2020, both of them from the University of Kentucky. His research is focused on hearing healthcare disparities. He serves as the PI of several NIH-funded community-based trials to promote hearing healthcare access and utilization among underserved populations. Just a couple of financial disclosures. I'm the host of On the Ear and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com. And Dr. Bush received compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for his contributions to today's presentation. All right, Dr. Matthew Bush, it's so awesome to have you. I have you just, your reputation precedes you in the best way possible. And I'm so excited for you to be joining me. How are you doing? I'm fantastic, Dakota. I am uh, elated to join you and, you know, very thankful to talk uh, to um, you know, these, these topics, these issues, but, you know, to make a new friend and, you know, further work together towards addressing some of these challenges, exciting. And thank you for those kind words. Um, you know, the, all those degrees, uh, don't mean a whole lot, uh, in, in, in a pragmatic sense. I feel like, 
you know, there's an inverse relationship with the number of degrees that you hold and how much you actually really know practically. So I feel like uh, with, with, with any, any more learning, I, I, something else useful falls out of the back of my head. But uh, Because there's a limited capacity. But I don't know because the work you're doing too is also, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways you could approach, you know, disparities. And I think your degrees kind of speak to how convoluted this issue is, right? If you have your, your MBA business standpoint of there's, you know, the financial impact and the financial limitations of disparities, you've got your MD, so you've got the more, you know, medicinal, uh, you know, physical impacts of this, and then your PhD and more the research and the more widespread population impact. So it's a really, I, I think you kind of have the perfect setup. I, 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 I think there's probably plenty of room in that brain of yours to tackle some of these issues. And I think, you know, your, your research you know, alone, your, your reference list is out of control. Um, I'm so interested what drew you to this topic specifically. I mean, was it in your MD? Was it when you were going for your PhD that you started to kind of hone in on this, this topic of healthcare disparities or kind of what led you to this point? Yeah, well, there's no doubt that my, uh, my academic degree pedigree is sort of, uh, demonstrative of an immersive approach to try to address disparities because they're complex. They're, um, they, they, they thrive in the pragmatic and the complexities of life from, like you said, the business, the medical, the research side of things. And we have to have different approaches. But, you know, for me, it's really been, um, a, a very organic and natural thing for me to pursue research in this field. I'm um, an Appalachian um, by birth, by God, and uh, grew up in West Virginia, uh, was very well provided for and grew up, you know, with means, with parents that were hardworking and had access to, you know, good educational resources and good health care and, you know, were, were um, observant of, you know, you know, basic things that, that their family needed for public health and wellness. But the reality is, is that growing up in an environment where rural life and rural communities sort of gives you a sense of those that have and those that have not. And there's many other people who have grown up in urban city and urban environments that may have had some similar connections and learning, may have had opportunities to excel academically and professionally, but still their family, their friends face inequities and challenges in healthcare. But I think growing up in West Virginia really kind of gave me a grounding, if you will, in understanding kind of the simplicity of rural life, the beauty of rural life, and sometimes the needs that are there, but yet also some of the fatalism that can occur in cultures of just you know, dealing with disparities by saying we just accept that life is hard and, you know, there's not much we can do about it. Uh, in medical school, those things were really kind of impressed upon me. The most influential physician in my medical school career was a family practice doctor who made old school house calls out in the rural hills of West Virginia, would bring flu shots to, um, you know, uh, invalid, housebound, uh, older adults, and, you know, really found himself, you know, that I need to be out there and in the community. And that really impressed something on me because I saw the joy that was in the provider's face and in his life and in his words. And you could see it also in the in the patients that sort of welcome that doctor like a family member to the front porch that then took a, you know, really, um, you know, 
sharp turn to uh, residency as a you know pursuit of laryngology residency, I really felt uh, the need to address and and kind of see the challenges as it relates to hearing healthcare. Um, being a resident here at the University of Kentucky, which is in Lexington, Kentucky, right at the precipice of Appalachia, but still, still sort of nestled in central Kentucky um, that's surrounded by uh, very rural communities, seeing you know huge differences, let's say, in pediatric hearing health care, those children that were you know born in and around the Lexington area having access, ample access to care um, and timely delivery of diagnostic and and, and treatment options for hearing loss, those coming from the more rural eastern Kentucky areas um, not having the same opportunities and the same timing. Um, and then that's just continued as I've kind of pursued, I realized I want to pursue a career in academic research. And, you know, I've done bench research, bench research and been, you know, had, had some really great opportunities along the way in fellowship and early career career for some, you know, more bench work. But it just my heart just kept driving back to what I've learned, you know, in in my family reunions, in my medical training, but then also in my own practice of just getting back to uh, where the greatest needs are in the community. Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like it's really informed by a lot of different aspects of your life, but I think having that personal connection is probably, you know, really, and the fact that you can't really escape it, right. You know, you check in with family and it's okay. This is, there's still work to be done here in these rural communities. I'm curious uh, how much of, and we're going to kind of dive into the, you know, the different, uh, disparities and kind of different facets of that. But I'm curious how much in your work you've seen um, location, like geographic location play into that. Do you feel, I, I can imagine that historically over the course of, you know, medicine in our country, that geographic location has always been a limiting factor and in, in a cause of disparities for healthcare, right? I mean, if you can't get to where the, the care is, that certainly limits your ability to receive it. So I'm curious where you've seen that just from, you know, growing up to now, how different it is maybe in the town you grew up in or with, you know, family members that were even more rural. I also grew up in a really rural town in uh, Virginia. And I remember, I mean, it was a hour and a half drive just to see the pediatrician that I saw. So it was, it was always a, a, a really big limitation to getting care there. But I know now going home and visiting, there's a lot more population, you know, you know, uh, cities grow and spread. It's a lot easier to get to these things. So I'm just curious what you've seen maybe on that personal level in terms of access to care for these rural populations through through your time and your career. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's absolutely the, the truth as far as kind of this very slow diffusion of, of care, even specialty care into rural areas. And sometimes you know, I, I'm, I'm shocked that, and the, you know, I'll be in some, you know, remote rural location. I, I provide care in some, some pretty, you know, remote clinics that are a couple hour drive from, you know, here at the University of Kentucky. And I'll see, you know, a patient, you know, in a restaurant or, you know, in, in this clinic who come in, who got a cochlear implant, you know, there may be, you know, no one else in the county that has a cochlear implant, but yet here's a patient who was able somehow, some way to, you know, have hearing health care, you know, not only with hearing aids, but, you know, as a, as appropriate move, you know, towards cochlear implant and receive an implant and yet find ways to get an implant programmed. And so it has been interesting, but, you know, the geography is, is, is an issue. These are things that we do find in our research that, that distance, 
um, makes a difference in timing and, uh, and, and delivery of care and it influences the access and utilization of care. But, you know, there's a lot to the different places that in, are, are related to the culture and the community. You know, that issue where you have, uh, you know, the only, you're the only patient in the county or in several surrounding counties that have a specific type of device or a specific type of condition, it can be pretty isolating. And, you know, that's, that's a unique, unique thing. Those people can be bright rays of sunlight to others that may have the condition because they can provide some, you know, personal knowledge of what they experienced and what their journey was. But I think it's really interesting. And, and to me, like I use that phrase, that's, that's what I've seen. It's just like this very delayed release and slow uh, diffusion of technology and resources that will get to remote places just the same way that iPhones could find their way anywhere on the planet. And even in the most remote area, it's just not going to be, a, you know, an iPhone, you know, next to, you know, point oh or whatever, the most recent version of it. But, you know, nevertheless, the, the technology and, and, and these things can, uh, can continue to be diffused. Yeah, they find a way into these places. <laughs> it's amazing stories, you know, how these people can, uh, can find a way through a connection, just an opportunity that they just sort of seize. Yeah. And so I'm sure one of the ways that you're able to provide care into some of these places is via telemedicine. And I know that's been one of the kind of the leading ways we've seen uh, access improve over the last couple of years. But I had to give you a shout out because just brushing up on you and then also on a different project uh, I'm I'm working on personally, you had a paper on telemedicine for hearing healthcare in 2019. It was published. So I'm sure you were working on that prior to 2019 way ahead of the curve pre-COVID with a telemedicine paper. So I'm curious what got you on the the track into looking into telemedicine for hearing care uh, and how you've kind of seen that change since since that paper. Well, I guess in some ways it's good to, good to be ahead of the curve. My kids, my kids will be the first to tell you that dad is not a trendsetter. You know, he's not, he, he, he's not going to set a, set a trend that everybody else is going to follow. But, you know, honestly, you know, telemedicine has been a love hate relationship in my brain in my research and in my career because some, some, a bit, a bit because of what we do in hearing healthcare, either as an audiologist or an otolaryngologist, there's, there's a lot of, you know, examination, understanding nuances. There's, you know, diagnostic testing that's very operator dependent. Of course, surgical procedures, you know, those are hands-on things. And so there's limitations of what we can really do. Uh, to tell you a funny story, you know, when I was finishing my fellowship, I trained at Ohio State and was fortunate to train with some really great clinicians and scientists. And uh, my, my primary mentor, you know, uh, Brad Welling uh, has been a, a, a guru in uh, NF2 and schwannoma research and really kind of has made a, a wonderful career of work in and bench lab and translational work related to that. And as I was, you know, considering a career in that too, I also had this, this, you know, swelling passion and drive for health disparity research. And Brad really encouraged me like, you know, this is, this could be a career. You could really pursue this. And I, there was a grant that came up about for me to apply. It was a collaborative grant between where I was trained at Ohio State and UK, where I was coming back to join this faculty. So I applied for this grant. I, I, I wrote it passionately and it had this huge 
telemedicine component that was a part of it. And the grant didn't get funded. And I'm like, how can this be? I'm the golden child. I'm coming back from the promised land, you know, into the motherland. And I've got all these great ideas. How could this not get funded? Well, it wasn't that great of a grant. I mean, that's why I didn't get funded. But I went to go find the person. I wanted to learn who, who actually got this grant. And it's this brilliant behavioral scientist, medical anthropologist, Nancy Schoenberg, who ended up being, you know, a tremendous mentor, became my primary mentor for my career development award with the NIH. So it was sort of like my enemy became my friend and my one of my greatest allies because of telemedicine and my inability to kind of articulate what to do scientifically. But that was the challenge. I kind of came in thinking, all right, what I'm going to do is I know there's a problem because I'm a clinician and I just, I know that my observations have to be scientifically valid. How could they not be? I'm just going to fix the problem right away and sort of throw a tele-whatever, a tele-widget, a tele-ABR. I'm going to put something in the community and patients are going to flock to it. And we're going to, we're going to do all these diagnostic ABRs remotely. And the whole idea just became like, this is this giant wall of, you know, poor timing and wrong questions and wrong approaches to try to address the problem. You know, you need to understand the people, you need to understand the culture, some of the nuances before you immediately start to fix it with telemedicine. So it's interesting that, you know, the pandemic has really pushed fast forward on everything that's telehealth related. And it's opening up amazing opportunities for, you know, the next century of healthcare for us to deliver different aspects of things remotely. But it's still complicated. It's still limited by so many different things. And my life lessons in my research have been like, don't just rush in to telemedicine figure out how, when, and where, what's going to really contribute to sustainable work that can really benefit health. That's a really great approach to it. I really appreciate your humility in sharing that story too. That's awesome to hear. I know that that, you know, the process, you know, of being a researcher can be, <laughs> there's a lot of evolution that happens over the, over the course of the career. And I think that's a really helpful insight for people who are maybe on that track I know I have a good friend who's been on the podcast a couple of times now who's out of Georgia. She's an audiologist there. We've had two episodes now where the first one we recorded in 2020 where they had had the funding obtained to start a mobile audiology unit to get to these really remote parts of Georgia to provide care. They were having a huge loss to follow up rate on newborns, which has only, you know, was historically a problem in many states. And then with the pandemic has only been exacerbated. And, you know, she was really excited about this project, but, you know, the pandemic had just started. So they were trying to reorient and figure out what they were going to do. And then we checked in about a year and a half later, and they had basically converted this original idea of going out into the communities into a remote, you know, tele-ABR system. And just listening to her process of working out the kinks, I mean, you really would think with how accessible the internet is for most people, it still isn't in a lot of these rural communities. I mean, it would be crazy to me to go into, you know, a metropolitan city and not be able to have Wi-Fi in just about every single building I entered. But the amount of hoops she had to jump through to find, you know, a health department that had internet that was open to guests that they could bring in babies and train these. I mean, it's 
still in 2020, I think that was a 2022 episode, just so challenging just from the logistics side, let alone finding families and counseling them and the manpower of it, but also just the logistics of internet are still really hard to find, uh, to make accessible. That's the truth. That's the truth. I mean, so many different levels. I guess if they had a degree in telemedicine or telehealth, I guess that would be the next degree I would need to pursue. Um, because <laughs> you're right. Get, it's yeah, Let's not get any ideas here. Okay? <laughs> hit for the cycle. I, I, I'm good. My, my, my family have given me an ultimatum, like no more. You're done. Okay. Call it quits. But the reality is, you know, that that's the truth is that, you know, you, we take so many, we make so many, um, judgment calls and presuppositions of what we think people know and what we think they feel and what we think they're really facing. Um, and there's certainly the logistics and the real, you know, material equipment, the technical challenges, but there's cultural challenges too. You know, we have to ask ourselves, like, you know, does the community really believe that A, this testing is accurate, that B, it's going to lead to anything meaningful in the future, the quality of care or, you know, important outcomes that matter to them for their child or their loved one. Um, That's really important. And I think I've learned that more than anything else is that people, if, if people don't believe or the community doesn't believe in this you know, intervention, this, this treatment option, this new opportunity, then it's going to fall flat. You know, people in the community really have to believe in this and even more than just believing in it, they need to feel like they're part of the solution and they're partners in innovation and partners in, you know, solutions in trying to address care. Um, It's not, you can't just be about handouts. It has to be co-creation, co-innovation. And, and I've learned a lot of that the hard way. Um, but, but thankfully with some really bright community partners that, uh, give some very, very helpful feedback on directions that we follow. That's really interesting. I don't, I don't really know that I've heard that perspective before. And I think that makes a lot of sense when you think of initiatives that have, you know, they get the funding, they get all of their ducks in a row, but they didn't start with community buy-in, um, and ultimately, end up failing. I'm curious what that's looked like. I'm not sure if you've been a part of an initiative that took that approach. What is, what does that look like? Is it being a part of, I don't know, town hall meetings? I don't know. I'm trying to, I'm trying to brainstorm here, but what, what does that ultimately look like in uh, getting buy-in from the, from the culture, from a location like that? The core axiom that we live by in pragmatic um, research that it's involving health disparities and health equity is about community advisory boards. Um, Community advisory boards can look a lot of different ways. It can be composed of, you know, lots of different types of members. But, you know, it's really about giving a voice to people who are stakeholders and can play a role in either the success or the failure of your research or your initiative or sort of your scientific questions or even program development or clinic outreach, for example, but gaining the perspectives of the those different community members. It could be an educator. It could be a school, super in, school superintendent or school board member. It could be a, a politician council member. It could be a parent. It could be, you know, a caregiver for an elderly adult. I mean, it it really depends on the question in the community. But I think whenever we 
you know, sort of barrel, um, you know, head, head first into a community that has historically been marginalized and dismissed and say, hey, here's the latest and greatest. Here's a solution. You know, we've come from the big city with this, you know, shiny new whatever. There's a lot of skepticism. And, you know, we've learned a lot, you know, through um, some of the, the, the trage- tragedies and travesties of racial um, bias and racism, you know, lived out, you know, before our very eyes on news bro- broadcasts and through different scenarios in our, in our society. And you look at racial and ethnic groups that have been persistently overlooked and given these types of, you know, quote unquote, new fancy, um, you know, resources and opportunities to not be backed and not be supported and not to get any community input, they fall flat. The same is true in, you know, in different groups geographically and perhaps rural communities, regardless of their racial or, or ethnic makeup. Is that people have have you know been been sold a bill of goods, um, you know, year after year, decade after decade, promises that were made that were not kept. So it it sometimes can create a little bit of skepticism in the community. So if you get a you know, my advice, you know, when I talk about d- disparity research and pragmatic work, is that everybody that's involved in this field needs to have a community advisory board, no matter what kind of research or clinical care you're trying to involve in, if you're not having a formal way to perhaps informally, but yet consistently get the input of community members and stakeholders, then I think we really do our self a disservice. And we just, we're we're just not going to be grounded in efforts that we make. Wow. That's so interesting. And I, I I definitely see the connection there between those two concepts. Um, I'm not personally involved in this initiative, but where I work, we're, you know, putting together a mobile unit to help reach. It started as specifically for our pediatric cochlear implant patients who are driving four or five hours across the state, you know, setting up this bus so that they only drive an hour or so or less. And we see several patients in a day, but now the role of this bus continues to expand as we you know, see the need across the state. And I'm assuming that the people involved in the planning of this are, are you know, investing in these conversations with community members. But yeah, I, I can definitely see how, you know, that's how you get the buy-in is you have leaders of the community who were bought in and you're not going to convince these people. You're not, you're not these people. You're not in this community, but you know, the people who are definitely will. So that's a really interesting perspective on that. I'm curious what other, so we've kind of talked about uh, rural or not just rural, but I guess like geographic location as a potential cause of healthcare disparities, maybe racial and ethnic differences as well. I guess we haven't really dived too much into the history of that, but I know that that's historically, like in one of your papers, you guys talk about that a bit too. What other aspects of care should we be considering when we're trying to you know, address our own biases or really look at uh, disparities in hearing healthcare. Unfortunately, it's kind of an ocean of, you know, whenever you start to ask questions and start to look, then, you know, you sometimes get answers that you really don't want to get. And sometimes when I start to talk about disparities or give a talk on the matter, I feel like I am just nothing but doom and gloom. I am just telling everybody in this auditorium or in this audience how bad everything is. And it's not that bad in that there are options and there is hope and there's opportunities. Collaborative work is, you know, moving and grooving and working to make differences. But I think it's important to understand that disparities are 
you know, deeply rooted in lots of different dimensions. And we can kind of consider the factors that are influencing and allowing the propagation of disparities, you know, year after year, decade after decade, that kind of come from these different domains of the social determinants of health as, you know, a clinically trained laryngologist, a surgical subspecialist, I never really thought that, you know, social determinants of health would ever be a part of my daily dialogue or discussion. But, you know, if you care for patients and if you care about where they come from and where they're going and what, you know, today is like for them, you have to, you know, be thinking about this is more than just a clinical encounter that they are facing you know, either barriers or facilitators that are rooted in these different domains of, you know, the healthcare access and the quality of healthcare and sort of the health domain. Then you've got educational access and quality, their background of what their education has been like, their health literacy. You've got social, cultural influences and imprinting that influence their behaviors and where they go and and who they see and who they're willing to listen to and who they trust. You'll have you know, neighborhood and built environment factors that influence, you know, sort of that, that geographic place of where they live and, you know, health factors that might influence them, their socioeconomic position, you know, what are their financial resources and opportunities that are before them, all these different social factors that are very different than, you know, the genetic causes and the biologic causes, but they imprint every single patient that we see in every clinical encounter or that are a part of any research study. And it affects people from cradle to grave. You know, we're throughout the entire lifespan, these influencing factors may, you know, either protect, you know, from disparities or may, you know, propagate and make the disparities somewhat uh, resilient and, you know, obstinate to change. So I I think that's an important thing to kind of frame things in terms of these different influencers. But when I think about like the continuum of hearing healthcare, that it starts way before, you know, they are in the operating room for a cochlear implant or they're in our office for, you know, a diagnostic audiogram or, you know, sort of the healthcare encounter where the specialist perhaps is involved. But their journey begins, you know, a long time before then. And there is sort of this knowledge, this self-awareness that occurs. There's interface between primary care providers where maybe hearing healthcare is discussed, maybe it's not. If it's an infant, you know, whether they have access to high quality or meaningful eddy services and consistent follow-up through the eddy system. So that entry into hearing healthcare is really important. And for me as a researcher, that's where I really think about, you know, I've had to ask myself, how do I try to study the patients that never come into my clinic or never come to our audiologist? You know, we're not responsible for them because they never got here. But I would argue against that. We as healthcare professionals, hearing healthcare professionals need to think about all the people on the outside and how do we find a way to, you know, extend our circle or our sphere of influence to bring them inside hearing healthcare and awareness and sort of on the path. And to me, that's a really interesting and important aspect of research that can help us ask some important questions and then maybe get some meaningful answers that could lead to, you know, more efficient or effective entry into hearing healthcare. 
The other important issue is where there are transitions, where you're moving from, you know, one clinical encounter to another clinical encounter, from diagnostics to therapeutic, or from one type of therapeutic, such as hearing aids, into another therapeutic, such as cochlear implant. Those transitions are places where you might consider an analogy of leaky pipes, you know, where you can have patients that are lost to the system and they don't want to pursue anything else. They're eligible, but not interested. So those are really important issues. And so that, that kind of ties into that whole continuum of hearing healthcare that you know, disparities are just, there's so many opportunities to study and address it from a research standpoint. Yeah, I definitely like the using this idea of hearing healthcare as a continuum to see where the gaps can occur and kind of having that as the basis. I see what you mean, how there's this balance between the doom and gloom and the hope of it all. And, you know, it's, we've had healthcare in our country for a long time, but it seems like a lot of the issues are probably pretty similar to what they've been. Where do you kind of approach this? So I, I think it's helpful because not everyone listening is probably a healthcare disparity researcher like yourself, but they do either want to maybe kind of at least ponder the impacts on their clinical care or start to consider solutions for their clin- things they can implement to help with that. So when you think about how broad you know the influences are on this, where would you encourage someone who's kind of starting out and, okay, we there's clearly healthcare disparities where I'm working. I want to do something about it. I'll just throw like a real world example. So where I am working with pediatric cochlear implants, no show rate is just terrible. I see it more for the kids who come from rural areas. I see it more for low socioeconomic status families. So how do I help the people that I don't see, you know, and I can't talk to them and ask them, you know, what, what are the barriers here? So how do you approach those kinds of situations where it's not easy to get in touch with them, but you want to help address that problem? The first thing and the most important thing is don't throw up your hands and say, you know, I can't fix this or, you know, I don't really know what the problem is and I don't know what to do. And just kind of, you know, sort of just to give up from the beginning, you have to just have an openness to knowledge that, okay, as a clinician, I perceive there's a problem, but let's try to figure this out. The first thing, and this, you don't have to be a researcher to try to define or describe it. That's the first and the most important thing. And that's certainly where I started in my research is to say, I need to be able to articulate that there is a problem. And I can't just go on my clinical intuition alone or just interesting heartstring pulling stories of a child or a patient who was delayed and didn't get their care. But I need to find out somehow, some way to use data, the power of data to tell a story. And it doesn't necessarily have to be published research literature. I mean, we can go through our EMRs, you know, with much more efficiency these days than we could with our, you know, old chart system and have to look for no-shows or not or, you know, some of these old scheduling systems. So I think we're a little bit more efficient as far as EMRs, but if we can define and describe, okay, there is a population, maybe a racial group, an ethnic group, a cultural identity group or individuals from a certain geographic region of our city or of our state that are not getting the resources begin to use this some data to define it. Why that's important is because data can change opportunities. Data can open people's eyes to there's an issue here. And when we're talking about health systems, people see 
those no-shows as, unfortunately, as dollar signs. And sometimes administrators may not care as much about the outcomes that we care about, language development or social isolation, cognitive load or cognitive decline. Those things are maybe meaningless to a certain administrators. But if you can connect it to lost opportunities or lost financial resources, then sometimes it can then open some doors for discussion of what are we doing programmatically to be able to connect? Because you know, we learn this in, you know, in academic institutions is that not all people learn the same way, the way that we communicate with, you know, our learners, certainly with our patients, there's different means of communication that's more effective than others. And we might need to be able to reach out in different ways to schedule appointments or to maintain follow-up visits or to have patients pursue that recommended treatment through some different resources and support than we might think in our brains. So, you know, again, it starts with acknowledging that I think there's a problem. Let's get objective about it and find some true data that will describe or define the problem. And then let's use that to try to, you know, identify and partner with perhaps our local team, as well as maybe members in the community. Again, that community advisory board comes up to the forefront again, and then, you know, devise and develop maybe some pilot or test programs that could be able to, you know, move the needle in the right direction. You don't have to fix it all, you know, but to do nothing is really just giving into the problem. To do something is essential. Wow, that was just so practically helpful. I really appreciate you breaking that down. I think anyone out there who is struggling and feeling the weight of the patients you're not reaching, I mean, I really think that's just a really practical way to approach that. And I really appreciate you sharing that so clearly. Tell me a little bit about your current caseload and I know you are, you know, a practicing physician. You're probably in the operating room and providing clinical care. And then you've also got your research going on. And then in the back of your mind, the patients who aren't showing up and what you can be doing to help with those disparities. So I'm curious what your your, your approach to clinical care looks like with the background of all of these things that you bring into clinic with you. I'm so fortunate. I feel like I've got my dream job to be able to see patients you know, with about half of my time and the other half of my time be devoted to funded research programs. It's a dream come true. They they really do synergistically work together and sort of energize each other. You know, a, a day in the clinic, a full day in the clinic, even like today, I was in the clinic seeing patients all day. It's a tiring day, but it's also energizing in a way to know of the human interaction and connections that are made, the opportunities to, you know, speak some truth or some opportunities and some clarity into the lives of of people who've trusted me with their time and their ears. That's meaningful. You know, jumpstart some research ideas and kind of what we do through some of our research conversations, jumpstart then, you know, an excitement to get back in the clinic. So it's a good thing. Maybe I've got an attention span problem to, to be jumping from one sphere, you know, to the other side, other, other sphere. But to me, they're not all that divergent. They're really very similar and they're meant to to connect. That's, that is a key in my life for not only joy and, you know, happiness in my work, but also sustainability of just not being burned out, you know, finding value, finding purpose. But I will tell you that, you know, the more that I've been involved in this disparity work, 
not only quantitative research to define, describe problems, but qualitative research where we actually, you know, ask open-ended questions and then we shut our mouth and then listen and let patients really describe, you know, these barriers or challenges, whatever that research project's trying to address. You know, I find that it really builds my, my sympathy my empathy, my humanity towards my patients. I feel not inconvenienced. I don't feel like, okay, hurry it up. You know, you know, you're taking too long to describe, you know, your dizziness, but trying to just be a very empathetic, active listener. And that's really important in this physician patient trusting relationship. So I feel like, you know, Disparity research has given me a bigger heart and deeper passion for my patients to be an advocate for them, regardless of their means or their opportunities. And then just to really, you know, listen well to them. That's been important. And as I go throughout my career, I want to get better at what I do. You know, I want to be a better listener. I want to be a better surgeon. I mean, we always want to continue to improve and hone our skills, but disparity work for me has been kind of a jolt of humanity that keeps me grounded with them. I can see how that would be the case, right? You get to hear these true stories of the limitation. Like you were saying earlier, a lot of the time we can't know as much about the disparities because those are the patients we're not reaching. But with your research, those are the people you're learning from and you get to take that right into the room. And, you know, that family that drove four hours and had a broken car and all, I mean, that just means so much more when you come into it with the perspective of seeing the bigger picture, right? It's so easy to get cynical, right? We're so quick to say like, we had this three hour cochlear implant surgery scheduled today for 7.30 AM and you didn't call us till this morning. Like what's wrong with you? Now I got to wait around for three more hours and hope that the next patient shows up. Or we had this sleep deprived ABR and this baby slept the whole way in the car and won't get this ABR. We got to cancel it. I mean, we've this lost opportunity. We've got a lost dollar symbol. You know, it's like, how quickly we get so cynical, but realizing that there are so many things. I mean, perhaps that family didn't make it because they thought they would might be able to make enough you know, money to pay for the gas, to get one way to Lexington to that appointment, and then maybe get back home. But, you know, maybe they just didn't make ends meet. I mean, they might have had to choose between food for their family versus a trip for a clinical encounter. And, you know, how dare we think, you know, that this is a person whose their sole existence is just to be an irritant to me. And it's just a really shameful, you know, way that it's very identifiable. We can all identify and, you know, know that we've had feelings like that, but kind of pull yourself back and think in terms of like, all right, am I thinking like a human being or am I just thinking like an irritated kind of semi-burned out clinician? I don't want to live the rest of my life and my career being that burned out person. Yeah, that's a great reminder. I really appreciate how you can pull us back down to earth with that kind of thing. I know I found myself in that situation before with that mentality, and you're so right. When you do get to see them and you do get to hear the story and how much more that can help ground things, keep you from being cynical. Are you providing any telemedicine these days? And if so, I'm curious, that first grant right up to today, how you've seen that kind of care shift over the years? 
So we do deliver some telehealth. You know, we've had a pretty proactive telehealth program to reach some very rural clinics in, in Appalachia. Here through UK Healthcare, our you know, healthcare organization here is a part of the University of Kentucky. And that's been a longstanding program that's been very active across multiple types of disciplines, behavioral health and psychology and psychiatry, neurology. A number of services have used it very, very, you know, very well for you know, a decade and a half, two decades. ENT, our department has been involved in it in some ways through some satellite clinics and have continued to provide it. You know, it's much more accessible. You don't need to go to a sort of telehealth center where there is, you know, a setup for this. But I mean, any clinician, you know, with a, a camera on their screen, you know, will can can do their telehealth encounter through Epic or whatever EMR system. So there is, you know, continued telehealth delivery. There's aspects of care and limitations of what we can do telehealth-wise. Those diagnostic appointments, especially for pediatrics, like ABRs, you know, remote ABRs, these are things we've done some work in the area. Technology can be expensive. It's even more expensive to have good help and consistent help on the other end of the fiber optics or of the of the internet connection. And that's often where the challenge is, is finding the right partner in the community. So we've seen a, no, a number of sort of, uh, you know, flares, some bright bursts that sort of faded as, you know, you lost a, a medical assistant or a community member on the other end that, um, you know, we just couldn't keep a program sustainable. But that kind of continues. For us, it's, it's like I said, as, as I kind of initially thought telehealth is the program, I think it's more of, I think more of my research um, and intervention has been about how do you build trust in the community and how do you get the community involved in trying to, you know, guide and direct um, entry into care or support the transitions of care and um, utilize resources that are already existing. So that's sort of where we focus more of our efforts is less on the technology on, and more on the relationships and harnessing the power of, you know, local community, um, you know, stakeholders who are advocates for hearing healthcare. That's really where we've landed with a lot of the interventional work we've been, we've been uh, exploring over the last decade. That's great. And I, th- I think the grassroots approach to that is probably super effective and a lot easier to maintain, you know, than just a one-time pop-up shop kind of approach. Um, what do you feel like big picture policy changes could look like to help improve these disparities? I mean, I know healthcare disparities have been around as long as there's been healthcare, um, but with your with your background, both, you know, research and growing up in a more rural area, where do you see kind of, I don't know, it's kind of a vague question, but like big picture policy changes, either at a state or a national level that could, you feel, you know, this is like, uh, what do they call it? Big sky idea making, right? Like what's something we could implement that you feel like could really reach a lot of people and make hearing healthcare more accessible? When I think about, you know, governmental or policy changes, these, the, the big buy-in things that come from, you know, the, 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 you know, unifying organizations of a nation or a, of a, you know, population of people. 
and it, it makes me think about global health because where there are challenges of you know hearing healthcare delivery, you know the the nearly the entire continent of Africa, with a few exceptions, you know face immense. Um, you know, disparities and access to any kind of hearing health care. You know, the the EDI programs that exist on the continent of Africa, you know, you could count on, you know, two fingers probably. So it is, you know, and, and what it takes in countries that may be low to middle income countries to have uh, um, hearing health care move forward is an agenda, is a priority that until a nation, until a government, until a policy, you know, creating body believes in the importance and will be willing to invest in hearing health care, it will never receive the funding. It will never have the sustainability of the programs that are facilitated by policy support. Um, that's the challenge. And so while we might look at, you know, the United States and say, you know, we're, we're a lot better off, we're a lot further along than some of these low to middle income countries throughout the globe. You know, we've got, you know, mature eddy systems, we've got, you know, opportunities for reimbursable services. We've got a lot of gaps. And so I think that's an important issue of advocacy and promotion of hearing health care on you know, the macroscopic level on policy is that we need politicians and we need um, governing bodies to acknowledge the importance of hearing health care on the state level and on the national level. Now, what that will then hopefully do, and, and, and we have to be able to stand behind what we may be preaching for, because a lot of politicians will say, Show me the data, show me the research that what you're promoting, hearing screening, for example, in primary care, which isn't reimbursed, isn't a coverable, you know, um, you know, um, delivery of care or diagnostic testing or hearing aid fittings for adults, you name it, of the important things of hearing health care. They would say, show me the data that demonstrates that this is life changing. It, it, it saves money. It saves lives. It improves quality of lives and it's improving, you know, everything what America is. We lack a lot of data that really supports on a larger, very rigorous, generalizable scale. Some of the things that we proclaim as really, really important. The lack of that data is a factor that prevents, you know, driving, transforming policy change. But that's what we need. We do need more data that really helps to support and kind of anchor the value of hearing screening, for example. I mean, this is where my passion is, is like studying those patients and addressing the patients way before they ever would come to an otolaryngologist office or a tertiary academic audiology center. Getting that entry into hearing healthcare through, you know, just public health, you know, regular screening of adults. You know, our U.S. Preventative Task Force lacks recommendations for hearing screening because the data is lacking. And we can't be angry about that. We say, hey, what, what do we need to do to change that? You know, we know it's important for some policy making organizations such as, you know, Department of Health and Human Services you know, through the Healthy People 2030 um, initiatives to define what are important prerogatives for health in the future. Hearing screens a part of it, but it's really only a small incremental inc increase of what we would like to see change on hearing screening in adults. So 
I guess that that long, um, you know, rambling preamble is is me just saying that data really does drive decisions. Data really does drive programs and policy change. And so I guess that's why I have to continue in this field of research, because I feel like unless we keep, you know, continuing to study, publish, define, describe, and show value of, of hearing healthcare in, in multiple different levels, then I don't know that anything will ever change. Yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a great perspective on that. Um, I, I, it brings me back to, uh, like I was mentioning before, a friend of mine in Georgia, the, the way they were able to get the funding for their mobile unit was actually through the department of education, uh, because they, they took the time, they pulled the data and they looked at literacy outcomes for children with hearing loss in their state. And they were able to tie that back to, you know, that loss to follow up rate after the newborn hearing screening. And these kids, you know, they have a high loss to follow up rate and these kids are hitting uh, elementary school. And by the time they're in third grade, they're so behind from a literacy perspective that was it was greatly impacting their state's test scores and quality of life for adults. And so they kind of had to approach it from interesting literacy and reading <laughs> to get the funding they needed to help for uh you know, hearing healthcare, which I mean, there is a connection, obviously, right? But that wouldn't have been my first thought. Yeah, that, that, that wouldn't have been your first research study. Maybe if you just are thinking out it, about it as an outsider, you know, of let's just define, you know, whether they got an appointment or not, or the timing that they got their hearing aid or not, as sort of a clinical um, outcome measure. But the educational matter um, uh, outcomes really matter. And yeah, I mean, if if you if you got the right data and you can talk to the right agency and the right organization, then you know, some pretty exciting things can happen. Yeah. And I feel like it's, it's so much more, uh, more understood by people, you know, literacy is a word most people understand. They understand reading scores. There's, there's a reading score for students and for schools. And so it's a lot harder to explain auditory skills and even language development, I feel like is a pretty, you know, abstract concept to a lot of people who aren't in this field. But if you say, you know, they, they don't know how to read, they're on, uh, people know reading level, right? They're on a first grade reading level. Th- that kind of terminology is so much more approachable for the general population that I totally see how, you know, we kind of have to think outside of the box and how we approach the impacts of, of um, untreated, undiagnosed hearing loss. Uh, if we're going to get, and you're, you're right, right? It's, it's that public awareness first and foremost. Our country, we're fortunate that we've had, you know, eddy programs for the last 20 years or so, but in other countries are, that are still developing, that's kind of step one is that public awareness of hearing loss and its impact. So I think, I think that's a great, a great way to, to think about that in terms of you have to start from a place where people understand the problem. You can't ask them to, to solve the problem if they don't understand the problem in the first place. Um, we're kind of coming up pretty close to the end of our time here, but I did, as someone who works, you know, almost exclusively with cochlear implants, I'm so curious where you're seeing, uh, some of the uh, healthcare disparities impact your implant patients specifically, um, and maybe what your clinic has been doing. If, if you know, if they're kind of incorporating some of your research into how they approach clinic management, or even just front office, or you know, how has that? How has your research informed your like literal cochlear implant clinical care? As I said, you know where I kind of shifted some of my focus intervention of like, how do we quote unquote fix this problem? How do we address it with interventional research or clinical trials shifting from kind of the telehealth, tele whatever to community-based interventions. One of the biggest things that we've utilized is um, a program called patient navigation, which 
it's a fancy phrase really that just means, you know, a, a lay person who has gone through the same type of complex healthcare, such as let's say a, a, a cancer patient who has navigated through chemotherapy and, and is a cancer survivor may be employed or trained as a patient navigator to learn some under, you know, some issues and aspects of the logistics of healthcare and um, help people to make some, you know, connections as needed. But, but, you know, this is like a, a, a navigator from a cancer program gives back and helps another cancer patient navigate through their journey through care. But we, we've studied that. We've published on that in pediatric hearing health care and looking at, um, at that from a diagnostic standpoint, from, you know, failed newborn screen or referred newborn hearing screen from the birthing hospital to use navigation to see if it influences the child having a diagnostic ABR and seeing it to be, you know, immensely successful. We are studying that more on a larger scale, a state level now, but we're also wanting to study that, you know, academically on the, from the diagnostic to treatment standpoint, either hearing aid and or cochlear implant in their continuum of care. But in a practical sense, we have learned from and utilized the principles of patient navigation and have employed and utilized you know, formal positions such as someone that you might hire like a cochlear implant coordinator, for example, who, you know, is uh, someone who maybe doesn't have a strong background or history in, you know, healthcare as a medical assistant or a nurse or things like that, or a social worker even, but someone who feels passionate about the topic and invest in them and say, hey, you're going to be a very valued member of our team and we want you to tell us what we're doing wrong, what we could do better, but also to help us navigate these patients. So we have had, you know, hired employed navigators through the form of a coordinator as well as some other community support individuals, but also even had unemployed uh, navigators, not because we're, we're, we're cheapskates, but because they say, hey, I just want to donate my time. If I could ever be of help for your patients and support them and answer questions, let me do that. And so we have been very quick to influence, to, to utilize patient navigators to help influence what patients know, what are their attitudes about cochlear implants, about surgery, and help them to stay grounded in the realities of what we can do and what we can't guarantee. And then also just to help see them through and support them through the journey. Nobody wants, you know, a patient who's eligible, who's willing and interested to fall through the cracks. I mean, we just don't want that to happen. We don't certainly want to force people or coerce people to do anything that they're not wanting or ready to do. But patient navigation, patient navigators in a practical sense have really improved our effectiveness and efficiency at communication. And to me, like that is the first and most important outcome before we look at, you know, um, word recognition scores or hint scores or, you know, um, cochlear implant caseload numbers, you know, those are secondary tertiary outcomes. If we're communicating well, then we're successful. And that's really important. That's That's got to be the most important part of our cochlear implant program. Wow. We're actually in the process of hiring someone for a position like that uh, right now. And I think that's that's a really great way to approach kind of how you onboard this person, right? Is you're going to be that 
community facilitator for us. I feel like one of the common themes of our conversation has just been that buy-in aspect of things, right? And if we're going to address these disparities, we've got to have buy-in from the patients. We've got to have buy-in from the communities that they're coming from. We've got to have buy-in from the legislators who approve funding. You know, it's it's such an important thing to communicate these needs of our patients um, and the needs of you know kind of our healthcare system in general when it comes to hearing healthcare. So, yeah, and, and using your co- your cochlear implant coordinator as you know a communication facilitator with these families, letting them use their expertise when it comes to you know communicating with a population they're a part of, uh, and how effective that can be. I, I think that's a that's a great way to approach that. We, we don't belong in communication sciences. If this is our business of dealing with communication, if we're all, if we're just about transactions, I mean, we can't be transactional. We've got to be relational. That's, that is the heart of the issue. And there's a lot of things that we don't learn. We don't listen to. We ignore about our patients that uh, result in bad clinical outcomes, but also other bad, you know, communication outcomes. You've just so you know, you've dropped so many like, no, like put it on a a poster, you know, in a in a clinic. You, I don't know if you're coming up with these, you know, at random, but you've really got a knack for it. They're really powerful things. There, uh, I'm trying to remember the one you just said. We need to be uh, uh, not transactional. We need to be relational. relational. That's not good. That's good. Put that on a coffee mug with a with an ear and a and an implant on it. I'm not even kidding. That's awesome. I, th- I think that was an MBA class, just solely <laughs> devoted to coming up with sort of meaningless quips. But it's meaningful. <laughs> I, I could see how the class might have been meaningless, but no, these are these are helpful. These are where people take home. You know, uh, speaking of taking it home, let's take this thing home. It's been an awesome conversation with you. I've really appreciated your time. Uh, if there's people listening who uh, have more questions or are just trying to uh, get their get their feet wet in terms of addressing the disparities they're seeing in their clinics and their communities. Where could they uh, get in touch with you? Well, I would love to have uh, interaction and communication and collaboration has been, you know, a secret to success. So getting lots of different perspectives, but email works great. My, um, my, my, primary work uh, email out uh, email address is a good way to get a hold of me matthew.bush at uky.edu m-a-t-t-h-e-w dot b-u-s-h at uky.edu and um, I'd love it I love chatting about this I, I would do it for free I'm glad that I do get paid to do this stuff but it's a passion of my life so you've made that very clear and I really appreciate you taking the time uh, and I'm sure the listeners are just going to love this so thank you again it's been a great conversation thank you and that's all for today thank you so much for listening subscribing and rating This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R. E-A-R.